Hi everyone and welcome to Preparing for Launch, where we speak about the space sector through entertainment, education, advice and insight. Today we have Anuradha Damale to speak about space policy and diversity. Anu joined The Verdict in July 2019 and is a research assistant on the Verification and Monitoring Program. She holds a BSc Honors in Physics from Durham University and an MSc in Science and Technology Policy from the Space Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex, specializing in applying science policy approaches to international security. Anu is currently the UK Director of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. She is currently on the board of the British Pugwash and is a member of the Younger Generation Leaders Network. She was previously the chair of UK SEDS. Anu was recently awarded the We Are the City Top 100 Rising Star Award for her work in promoting inclusivity, accessibility, and equity in the international security space. At the center of most of her work have been the causes of inclusion and diversity and the belief that in order to form sustainable and innovative technology or policy, inclusion is necessary. Sinus X minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. The opinions expressed in this episode are not that of Verdict or WCAPS. Hi, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, we've already done this, so this is quite funny. (laughs) (laughs) We do the whole like, hello thing, I should just start recording from the beginning, but... (laughs) It's okay. I I don't, because I don't think. This is good quality value, it's all good. Yeah, it's real, it's not... It's comedy, I know, it's all good. Um, security and policy, first section. Yeah. To be honest, and I already mentioned that in your intro and stuff. Honestly, I did not know what space security was until, like, two days ago. So, very happy that I do now, kind of. <laughs> um, what initially drew you to security and policy? Was there, like, a defining event or moment that you were interested in it? Um, this is a really interesting question because every time I answer it, it's really underwhelming. Um, or confusing. So, I, I did physics at undergrad um and I went to Durham yes gang um and (laughs) I I loved physics and I still love physics um but something about university and the particular university that I went to Durham um sort of drained my love for it a little bit and this overlapped with the Brexit referendum uh the election of Trump and basically there was a massive surge of conversation to do with science, scientists, responsibility, research in the UK, um, and how to conserve the ability of scientists to be able to be involved in governance and policy, um, and how to protect immigrants within the UK who are like sort of contributing to the scientific community. There was a lot of conversation going on basically at the time, and I started volunteering for one of the advocacy organisations, and doing like March for Science and March Against Brexit and all of these things. Um, And it came at a time when I was having an identity crisis about my academic career. (laughs) I've had had that, don't worry, (laughs) many times. (laughs) So at first year I was like, you know, research cosmologist, here I come sort of thing. And then by third year I was like, I cannot think of anything worse than being trapped in a lab and tied down to academia. Um, and I realized that actually I care a lot about the regulations, about policy, about sort of the the lives of these people and scientists. Um, and then I sought out degrees to help to do that, um, because I thought, okay, well, clearly I have the care for it, but what I really want is, is the sort of language and toolkit to be able to be able to work in the field. Um, and I had no idea where it was going to lead. Uh, I thought at first that I would be interested in governance. So like, um, making sure that, so, you know, like making sure that frameworks that exist in universities, for example, to measure how well they're doing aren't discriminatory and don't put pressure on the universities in the wrong way, or looking at sort of the ethical side of the scientific research that's going on. Um, but I took, I took one course, 
um, just on a whim in my master's year. That was on science, technology and security challenges. And um, yeah, that was the beginning of the end, I'd say. I, I sort of was so interested in, in, in an area which combines the ideas of ethical science, of applications, of real world applications of science and policy um, that impact people on the day to day and that are very real. Um, and, and also just, I don't know, I, I really loved watching spy movies and um, Avengers movies when I was growing yeah. up. So I was just Fair like, enough. oh my God, <laughs> you know, this is so badass. Um, uh, <laughs> so I just, I don't know. I think, I think it was a slow burn of a romance. And now, even though sometimes it drives me crazy, I am deeply in love with the field that I'm in. Um, yeah, that, that's what sort of attracted me to it. That's amazing. I think it's just one how one course or one kind of moment can like change your whole career. My master's course was actually called Science and Technology Policy. So oh, I did see? a master. Yeah, exactly. And it was at the Science Policy Research Unit. Um, and basically you cover the grounds of language, of government um, in different countries, economic, sociology, like they cram a lot into a little and it's very intense and you don't know everything but you know enough for there to be a good starting point so so what i came away from i think the biggest things i came away from with my course that were areas that i cared about in terms of research frameworks and methodologies systems theories of innovation um which i could talk about for hours which is talking about how you within a national system or an international system you have to look at how different parts of a society are connected at what level and what holds them in that connection and what drives technology or policy through it and consider all of those different aspects and how they work together to be able to actually form informed technology or policy or artifacts of technology that actually work for that society at that given time um and that was one of the things I took away from it. The other one was general sort of security policy. So I actually, I'm moving into space policy professionally. I've been interested in space policy for a while, but I started off in nuclear policy. So I started off in sort of nuclear disarmament, non-proliferation and arms control and applying science and technology to solving those problems. So, so like looking at fuel cycle modeling, coding, um, general sort of, uh, using satellite imagery and so on and so forth to be able to address those policy issues. That's so true. I think as well, this, I don't know why I thought of this, but I, th I just thought of Astroscale and companies that work with space debris. They yes. have to have a fallback because mm. it, it's just about responsibility. And mm. yeah, that's it. It's responsibility. I think, um, plug, listen to Harriet Brettel's episode two. Um, but <laughs> what a babe. it's shameless plug but listen to it um but she talked about it, so I won't get into it too much because like there's an episode on it but yeah listen to that because it's she explains it so perfectly just how I, I have she's she's so good fantastic and it's just mm. logic it's like res be respectful when you put things in the space and yeah so you can be and it's kind of just all about yeah see I, I, that, which, I, I don't which know is, anything about economics but it's just common sense when you hear her you can't or you can't debate that it's just common sense right and and that's the thing so the issue is that there are there are harriets in the world who know what they're talking about and there are policy makers and decision makers who will nod but then go away and forget everything and 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 that's not the case for everyone um but but it's it's hard because I guess these decision makers have so many things to consider that they will always prioritize the thing that seems to be the most urgent issue. How can space policy influence like, climate policy, education, industry and jobs? How can that kind of like branch into others? So space policy, um, okay, I think a really good example of this is, I think it was late 2015, the UK published its first proper like space policy so it was like this is a document that outlines what our space policy means and what space policy means for the uk um and there's there's a whole really good document so if you search for national space policy uk like you'll see it 
Um, and essentially it lays out all of the different departments that are involved um, it, in any way with space policy or are influenced by and all of the different sectors. So, um, so for instance, the UK Space Agency is all to do with civilian space activity. So civilian means not military, so not to do with um, war or anything to do with monitoring other countries for, for military purposes. Anything that is civilian and covers policy regulation delivery comes from the UK Space Agency. Um, it also is responsible for implementation of U United Nations treaties. So there are five main United Nations treaties. We don't need to go into them right now, um, but, but basically they regulate what we can and can't do in space. Um, they are quite old and they've become harder and harder to implement over time. Uh, there's lots of sort of uh, conversations about how treaties don't have a space in space law anymore um because it's become harder and harder to implement them for different countries but in any case the uk space agency's job is to implement un treaties to uk legislation so what that means is taking the language from the united nations that you've signed up to and said you're going to do this and make it national law does that make sense yeah so it, it's the gap between the un and the uk it's it's all so embedded within our culture from all of these sort of very national policy implementation things that you might think are more obvious to things from to things to the department for education to things to the department for culture media and sport so so dcms which is department for culture media sport they will provide sort of um the spectrum for space missions um use satellites to deliver broadband services uh, the department for education will use like elements of space research that are happening right now to make science more accessible or exciting for kids in schools so what i'm saying and that was a long way to say it is that it's actually really really embedded within our economy um and it's embedded within the economy of lots of different countries in lots of different ways so this was just the uk um and it's it's so important therefore to have like a solid framework that governs how we use space research or what we do to do space research, like the methods we use, so on and so forth, in whatever different way, to ensure that they're all used in a productive way and in a way that is that is like sort of conducive to prosperity and benefiting our society. So one of the first things I learned in my security classes was that every technology can be used for good or bad. So they can be used for good things or bad things. And the way I've described my job to people when I, I am meeting sort of younger people who might not understand the nuances of the language I'm using is that my job is to make sure that science and technology are used to, and, and advances in science and technology are used to benefit society rather than harm them. So it's just making sure that all of these weapon systems that exist, all of these technological innovations that are happening are used for good rather than bad or to undo bad, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. That's a, that, so, so space policy, in my view, should be to make sure that we're using developments in space science and technology to benefit society rather than to harm it. And... Just Sorry, yeah, go on. No, go on. Sorry, I was about interrupting people. Um, just from like, my interest, what is an example of t using turning a technology bad to good? Like using a bad technology and turning it back to being good? It's not bad technology. No technology is inherently bad or good. Yeah, it's 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 so the root of technology is is the technology itself. It's the applications of the technology that make it good or bad. And then what happens is you get this new application of it and that can then be used for good or bad and then it kind of creates a feedback loop so you end up with a technology that's bad or good um so for instance in my view i am not a fan of nuclear weapons that was why i got into the field i did so for me that's a bad technology and that was an application of nuclear science that that was not beneficial in my view right now to society back when it served its purpose that's a whole other argument to be had um, but right now, I don't see the purpose of them 
um, being as a good thing. However, nuclear technology has also been used to provide nuclear energy, which is a cleaner source of energy. Um, there's a lot of work to do to make sure that that, that technology is optimized um, so that we can use less and less coal. But that's one technology that's been used in two ways. So now I'm using sort of satellite imagery technology or fuel cycle modeling technology and code to try and undo nuclear weapons and the role that they play in society. Does that make sense? Definitely. Wow, that's incredible. But you can that's also insane. use that same satellite imagery technology is also used for military purposes to monitor what countries are doing, to be able to know when to strike, if you're going to strike, to be able to, to uh, invade countries. So it's it, there. there is always there's always a way in which a technology can be manipulated. Like there are, there are schools of thoughts on this called social construction of technology and technological determinism, which they're, they're two different things. Um, no school of understanding how technology works is perfect, but it's important to, to, to understand the nuances of how society and technology actually kind of mutually shape each other. Um, and so, regulation and policy to keep that shaping productive and conducive in my view is important how can we change or adapt current policy to meet business demands or other changing political landscapes um okay so recently i've been listening into a lot of webinars on space so for those of you that are interested in space security and policy and safe space safety which is how i like to think of it now um there are lots of online webinars happening at the moment because there's a lot going on within the sector. Um, the one thing that we need to acknowledge is that back when UN treaties were formed, or at least the big one, the Outer Space Treaty, the main actors in space, which means the main people that were operating in space were countries, they were states, they were governments. That's not the case anymore. Um, there, there are now so many commercial actors, like businesses, like SpaceX that operate in space, that we, we need to find ways to regulate that behavior. So a really basic reason for that, let, let, as an example, is now space is more full than it's ever been, right? There was a crazy statistic about the fact that like a lot of the debris in space is like unused satellites that are out of, out of use any, in, in now. And that's insane. There's, there's so much stuff in space, but there's also still lots of really important stuff in space yeah, true. <laughs> that, we, that we depend on. So stuff like the ISS, stuff like weather satellites, stuff like GPS satellites. Yeah, oh my gosh, that, true. Stuff like satellites that, that are monitoring um, countries that are in the global south that don't have their own space technology that might be you know, prone to massive changes due to climate change, um, that, that are undergoing military operations, they're all dependent on space-based assets, right? True. So, um, and those assets that can be intelligence assets, surveillance assets, um, reconnaissance assets, they're all, all like types of satellites or telescopes or whatever that are based in space or sensors. And um, the issue with things in space is we can't really control where they go once they die. Um, and we can't control where that debris goes. And so... And so what happens is that there's a risk of this debris or old objects in space damaging objects that are really, really useful and critical for certain countries. Um, and as, as we sort of increase the amount of commercial actors, there needs to be some kind of regulation that works for commercial actors and for state actors. Because UN treaties don't really work for commercial actors because you can't, like UN treaties are signed on by states or countries, right? So, so mm -hmm. they're signed on by, by governments, not by individual companies. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there, there right now is like huge conversation going on about different ways to deal with this. So like one example you've already brought up is Astroscale trying to like develop a system to collect debris and build a business based on that. Yeah, but, th but in the meantime, there also needs to be discussions about norms in space, about how we should be behaving in space about how traffic should behave in space. Like almost just building regulatory frameworks that countries like and companies like, that mean that 
we're all coexisting in space in a way that is sensible and productive for everyone, but also isn't, isn't allowing one particular, in my view, isn't allowing one particular company or country to gain advantage over other countries. And wow. so we, th there's a lot going on. There is a lot going on. So it's not just people that are going into space or putting things into space. It's the people on the ground as well. So space insurance, that's a thing, um, which I didn't even think of until quite recently. Like there are companies that provide insurance for your assets that go into space. They have to consider like, you know, what is a sensible amount of time to give um, things in space covering like coverage <laughs> or whatever coverage that's the word um there's the the people that are um sort of building business models on the ground they need to understand what's going on up there and that, that's the other issue like we don't we know what goes on but we do but, but like there's there's a lot of gray area sorry you look like you want to ask something no no i'm so yeah, well, I'm just like shocked. I, no, I'm I've, realized, I've realized that I'm rambling and the fact that I'm rambling is like, I just, there's just so much. No, no, no it's great you're rambling. We love rambles. This is literally what I just ask anyone who knows me. I just ramble for days. But I'm just um, like, there's, there's just so, so much. much. It's so like stressful. <laughs> it's so stressful. There's so much to And this. then there's like the ethics of, of, and the thing that interests me, for instance, is like the ethics of where does all this data come from? Like, yeah. how can we trust that the people that are saying that this object is there and that object is there are saying it, what is their intent? Like, what is the intent of all of these things? Um, and then there's like, on the other side, there's like, okay, fine, we're gonna send astronauts into space. What is the ethics behind collecting health data to do with astronauts? There are so many questions. So, so many much. questions. You've had Parabolades on this, haven't you already? Fantastic, yes, fantastic. Yes, they, they, incredible. they, yeah, so like Lauren, who shout out a good friend <laughs> she she is really good to talk to about this kind of thing like i remember just going into an existential spiral being like oh my god health data but space <laughs> like i know it's there are so many nuances and guidelines that need to be adapted to and it's it's the thing is the moment you think there's an end game that's where i think people have got it wrong because they'll stop They'll stop being reflexive and I, yeah, it's, it's mental. Sorry. Oh God. I've just lost all chill. I just love no, my field so much, but that's also, incredible. Like, you can whoa. tell how into it you're amazing. <laughs> no, this is why I'm fascinated. I'm sitting here like in awe and I said, wow, like 20 times because it's just so fascinating because I don't know. I just think it's incredible. And I honestly admit, like I did not know anything about face policy before researching this podcast honestly and like, i just didn't know about it which was like i was always into i knew space law i've always been really into space more just like that's more like with treaties and stuff yeah um only like don't put space nukes war. in space yeah exactly but yeah. i didn't know about like, but here's the other thing here's the thing there is stuff happening on earth with treaties right now that has implications for that there there are treaties that say that you should not that haven't been signed by your countries but you should not be testing nuclear weapons the united states has has said that they want to restart testing nuclear weapons. Um, there's treaties like the Open Skies Treaty that was all about being able to fly um, in clear skies over each other's countries just for monitoring purposes and have a quota to make sure that like everyone is doing that fairly. The US has pulled out of that treaty, has said that they're going to pull out. They're, sorry, there's like an implementation process for that. But there's there's implications for this because if people think it's okay to do that on Earth where we live, and and clearly don't have like as much of a connection with with space as they should then then the health of those treaties hopefully nothing will happen with them the health of them is is under crisis and then there's the issue of of compliance because so two weeks ago or three weeks ago there was a there was a piece of rocket um that was tested from I think China, but there's not, I don't know if it's been like proved that it was China where they hadn't thought about the re-entry mechanism for this piece of debris. And the, the piece fell into the streets of the Cote d'Ivoire, uh -oh. of the Ivory Coast. Oh it just, it just fell. It was like this massive piece of, of rocket debris that just like oh landed. Well, no, luckily it, they weren't, but they could have been, and it could yeah, have fallen on a piece like, of... Yeah, like, so could have killed many people. Like, exactly. What, rocket debris, oh my God. There's a part of, a, of one of the treaties called the Liability Convention, which says that if something like this happens, 
then the country that didn't plan for it is liable financially to deal with it. However, the Ivory Coast is not a signatory to that treaty. So they can't be like, yo, what's up? But <laughs> you know yeah, exactly. Because when, when debris is falling from the, like, it's not gonna, just gonna pick. Okay, let's land right in this exact like but, altitude. But, altitude. But also oh. think about this: a piece of rocket missed New York City by fifteen minutes that same week. So these things they matter. They impact society on ground. And let me tell you that if that piece of debris had not landed in the, in the Ivory Coast and had landed in the United Kingdom or Europe or the United States or Canada, there would have been a big uproar about it, especially because it's, it was at the time suspected to be a Chinese rocket. I still can't remember if it was verified or not. But can you imagine the uproar that that would cause and how it paints, like it makes it even clearer the divide between powerful countries and countries that might not be considered to be powerful and how much importance we give them? And space is meant to be a global commons, but it hasn't been for a long time. Like global commons means that it's for the greater good, right? It can be used by everyone and it's meant to be accessible by everyone. When devising new security regulations and, or safety regulations for space, we need to be inclusive of the concerns of everyone. We need to be inclusive of the concerns of countries that might not have fancy ass space assets going into space or massive militaries because that's not space policy for everyone. That's not regulation for everyone. And I'm really tired of hearing about the United States over and over and over again. You know? I am too, I am too. It is really annoying to be honest, like to start off, I don't know. Look, they're important because they have, they, they control a lot of influence on a lot of the world. They, have, they are, you know, a strong economy and they do matter because, because of the semiotic power or the symbolic power that they have across the world in terms of political gain, in terms of political strength, and it would be really stupid to ignore that because it's fact, like it is what it is. But we have to start, in order to start dismantling those structures, you have to attack it from every which angle. And if that means inclusive space, safety and security management policy, then that means that it, it is a step in the right direction. Well, but space, oh yeah, so what role does space, the space sector play in the future of the UK's climate change initiative? Um, so we kind of touched on this, but oh, in, we did. Oh, yeah, you're the right. long and short, no, 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 it's fine. Yeah. The long and short of it is that we use space-based assets to monitor climate data yeah. and to relay weather information. And, and like, again, coming back to like the sort of space debris and traffic management question, we need to be able to protect those space-based assets. That's a basic thing, right? We need to be able to protect those assets to be able to continue informing our climate change policy. So that's like one really obvious way in which um, we need to do that. But what would also be nice is just like, acknowledge it more. Yeah. At, at a base level, I think. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. A mutual upon agreement that like, this is very important. We need to prioritize this. It should be like a, the assumed, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just a base. How does, I think we've also touched on this before, but how does political how do political motives hinder or advance the development of space missions Oof. um big loaded question yeah. um <laughs> so politics is a fickle game because you can never tell what the motivation is or like it of an individual every decision made in my view is political because there is some motivation that isn't that isn't always entirely unbiased because we all have different experiences. What I'm trying to say is like that corruption kind of in it. Maybe I wouldn't call it corruption so much yeah. as I would call it bureau bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, and I, it's, like... it's just, it's what I'm trying to say is that politics is so inherent in every decision a government makes that the question is kind of hard to answer because we know the answer. Um, I think it's really obvious. Um, so I'm trying to think of a really clear example. Like, okay, here's an example. India's ASAT test. Um, yeah. so, so India's ASAT test, there are only four countries or five countries, I think, that have demonstrated ASAT test. What is an ASAT test? An anti-satellite kinetic test, right? What it is, is a test to show 
that you have the ground-based missile capabilities or space-based whatever capabilities to be able to destroy your own satellite. So at the moment, they've not been military because they've only been used to show against their own country. But what they are, are a way to show that you are capable of shooting stuff in space. <laughs> and and, and the, I think the maximum apogee of the, um, apogee is such a funny word. Apogee? Apogee. apogee. I don't know. No idea how, I can't say anything. I can never say it, but, but it went above, above the orbit of the ISS. <laughs> so, so and Hattai. i i'm telling you like the the language that was used after that by the indian government was very much like this is a proud day like this shows the world like how how capable we are how like ready we are so so they that was a politically motivated decision yeah that there's no other like why else would you shoot a thing <laughs> like your own thing in space and spend all that money in it's to show it's to do with global power structures it's to wow. do with it's that decision in particular was to do with global power structures it was to do with um showing countries that you know they're a main stage player on the international security stage and not not every decision is like that but i think that that's one really good like obvious example of it another thing could be internal politics so um, actually, there's a really good paper that this applies to nuclear, um, which is really old. Um, and uh, what it does is it outlines, and it's by Scott Sagan, I think, it's three reasons why countries develop nuclear weapons. One was um, norms um, to sort of show that that was the third one, but we're going in reverse order now. So <laughs> the first was norms, just to be like, um, this is like, we have nuclear weapon, look at how strong and how like, powerful we are and then the second one was appeasing constituents or voters so it's like the national politics model so it's like people that vote in the country how to keep them happy how to keep the country working properly um so uh to keep voters happy having a nuclear weapon to to keep the sort of researchers with a nuclear technology happy having a nuclear weapon investors happy happy having a nuclear weapon and then the first was this like black box idea of well this is going to keep us safe this is security um and, and I think you can sort of, there are other reasons and there's more nuance, but I think I always go back to thinking about those three things and how they overlap and intercede. And I think that they apply to, to a lot of sort of national politics decisions in a less aggressive way. Um, so I think considering the, the first, what is the core reason? Like what would be the most obvious reason for doing it? Second, how is this going to keep people happy, like lobbyists, um, voters, voters that might be feeling like they're being ignored, which was one of the reasons why the Trump administration won, according to some research. And then, like, what does this mean for the country symbolically? So for the Modi thing, I think it's very much like a symbolic thing, even if some people might think of it as a security thing. Um, but yeah, so, so internal politics matter too. For students interested in going into space policy as a career, what mm -hmm. should they study? What extra things should they do? What what did you study that helped you? Like, where can people start, basically? Okay, so um, if you are in school, study what you want. I think, okay, definitely do, like, if you want to work in space, it makes sense to do a science. Like, do a science at A-level. Um, but the most important thing for me, I think, if you want to work in space policy, is to have some level of understanding of how policy works. Um, a good understanding of how the space sector works. That might not be an entirely technical knowledge, but some technical knowledge. Um, uh, but also a genuine interest um, and a genuine engagement within the field. Um, so I know people that work in space policy and law and regulation that have come from all over the place. Um, I know lawyers that started as sort of national implementation lawyers that now work within space. I know physicists, um, not including myself, uh, people like Ali Stickings at RUSI, she, she's, um, she came from a physics background. Um, I know people that did engineering first and I know people that did medicine first. So um, the, the idea is make sure that you're peripheral at all times, but more importantly, make sure you stay involved in any way you can. Be that by signing up to things like UK SEDS, 
um, be that by, uh, you know, being involved in webinars and, and all of these things. The good thing about, oh, not the good thing about this pandemic, but the, the thing about this pandemic is suddenly everything's really accessible and that's possible. Um, um, and not, not accessible in the, in a perfect way, but they, people are trying no. to be, yeah. to make things more virtual, which they should have done for disabled people before, but that's a talk for another time. Definitely. Um, and, um, and I think, trying to just stay involved is mentally is a good thing i never had any formal training in like space policy um i had training in physics and i had training in policy and i sort of formed my own understanding by remaining engaged where i could um reach out to people you know in the field um sign up to sort of newsletters from space news and so on and so forth and and yeah it's it is a niche and there are people with different expertises but we need more people and we need more people that want to bring together every single different discipline that exists uh in space to actually form inclusive and appropriate space policy definitely i think my, i was about to ask what are ways you can engage in security and space policy even if they don't want it as a career um and it's just reading guess webinars yeah. like that. Yeah, I would say the news <laughs> because yeah, yeah. Twitter. <laughs> um, my Twitter is my news source. Yeah, I I I mean things are happening really quickly at the moment. So the Artemis yeah. Accords um yeah. is like a big thing that's happened which is all to do with like lunar exploration and ownership. Ah! <laughs> it's, oh yeah, true. It's really messed up. Um ah. but yeah, it's a it's a whole thing. But um, my suggestion would be that if you're not interested in it as a career, sign up to newsletters if that's how you consume them. Um, or there are webinars that you can have on in the background that are pre-recorded um, and that you, sorry, post-recorded or recorded and then you can see them. Um, and just like follow the right people online. Um, it's a it's a niche that's becoming more and more important and also like i jokingly said three years ago that if real life star wars happened i really wanted to be like commander of the resistance or something and like now it's happening so <laughs> i love that um so just yeah just just um google 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 will tell you uh when yeah. new things are happening you just said it has a massive initiative and it had a lot of action taken to promote diversity and inclusion within mm -hmm. our organization and community. Um, so just kind of jumping straight into it, this is a big question, but what does it mean to you to have a commitment to diversity? Uh, what it means to me to have a commitment to diversity is to have a commitment that isn't um, a box ticking commitment or has an end goal. So yeah. it's not saying we will, once we reach this point, we have done it, we are diverse or saying put two women on our panel, tick, tick. It's challenging the actual underlying norms of your organization, institution, or your thinking that cater to a environment that where everyone looks the same and saying, firstly, why does it look like that? Secondly, what can we gain from changing that? And thirdly, how do we do that in a sustainable way that is going to benefit everyone? Um, I think for me, that's what a, what what like a proper diversity idea is 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 how do we turn this into a process that is continuous and and always changing and always reflexive, always looking back and taking a step back and thinking, okay, we did this. What could we have done better? Or did this work? What can we do to change it? And and also identifying it as a central decision-making thing rather than an afterthought or something that's like yeah. tangential so kind of put it at the beginning forward thinking before like a conference or an event not just thinking afterwards yeah it be like it should it, be a priority first and then absolutely it's all 100%. about making it the central a central decision-making sort of anchor um but also yes at the beginning but also the middle but also the end oh yeah true, true. you know like it's not just about so obviously NSSC um, yeah. and DISC, which was our diversity in space conference, um, are events where we can deliver actual diversity and inclusion stuff. So for instance, having pronoun badges, having color communication stickers. Um, but what's also important is how your organization operates. How do we 
operate or how, what are our operations what are our outreach and education things um what's our recruitment process so inside and outside and how are we making sure that these are diverse and inclusive um and that is written within the uk said's constitution it is like not the constitution but the, the backbone of our organization our strategy all of our plans all of our rules and regulations our code of conduct that is central to everything we do um any tweets you see any are, are screen readable um any uh images we use we try and make them screen readable we try and use alternative text um any graphics we design we make sure that they are readable for uh colorblind people um any language that we give out we make sure that it's clear and concise it's it's all about the entire experience being accessible think about how you can make everyone feel like they are a part of what you do that's fantastic it, it, amazing initiatives and i remember at the nssc it was so clear and evident that it was a priority and it was just really genuine the whole time. I think a lot of people were commenting in a positive way about that, how it was just really genuine and we can just like see. It was my first UKSAPS event and it was just, it was the actions taken were just so respectfully done and executed so well. It was extraordinary. Well, it's, it's, it's a credit to the organization and it's a credit to the people that have worked hard to make that the case. Yeah. Um, and obviously it was something I get about a lot. <laughs> um, but you know, there were the, the, the cogs were already going before I got there. Um, I actually joined UK said through, um, it was in October, 2018. So not very long ago. Um, and it was through the diversity in space conference. Anya Bryan, who used to be secretary of the, of UK said exec the year before I was chair um organized this event and she asked she she'd heard about how i care about these kind of things we had a mutual friend and she asked me if i wanted to come and volunteer and it was amazing and you know we just built i just built on what she had envisioned her and heidi Tiemann. but it wasn't just the women it was it was the men as well and it was also and this is an this is so important it's not yeah. just to do with gender it goes yes. beyond gender it's it's race it's sexual identity it's uh sexual preference it's gender identity it's it's social um uh, social economic backgrounds it's where did you go to university all of these things matter it's whether you're able-bodied or not and this is something that we have made sure to implement at every stage and that's why people come to UK sets for advice on diversity and inclusion in science, not just in space. It's because we published papers and presented them about how including um, or having initiatives for, for instance, LGBTQ people makes events more accessible on average to the United Kingdom. And, and having that data is a slap in the face to anyone that, that has something to say um, that's negative about it. Exactly. Besides what we've done at UK SEDS, mm. how do you think organizations and individuals as well in as organizations can best promote diversity and inclusion within their sector? What are some specific things that they can do as well? Um, um, I think leading by taken. example. Yeah, so there's leading by example, right? Like, so I think don't make the one woman in your team in charge of diversity. That's the first yes. step. Yeah. Like, do it if she wants to, if she comes yeah. forward, but it should it should be more people than that. Um, make diversity and inclusion a core part of your company or organization strategy um, and have like actual strategic documents written up with language on how you're going to ensure that your workplace is inclusive. Um, recognize that inclusivity is actually good and productive for your workplace. So I work for an NGO called Vertic um, and I was astounded at the fact that we have in place uh, remote working arrangements for everyone. Um, you know flexible working arrangements for everyone and what that means is that yes those things benefit like people that are new on parents or people that live far away but they benefit everyone because everyone is happy and operating in a way that makes them productive and provides more output for the company even though and everyone is benefiting from these policies that are meant to help like maybe people that aren't able-bodied or maybe women have just had a baby like this helps everyone. So recognizing that inclusivity procedures are should firstly be beneficial to those to make it equitable, to make it to make society equitable for everyone. But also like it's just gonna make for a more 
happy workplace. Productivity, I think, if you say productive workplace, that's good, but it, it uh, assigns value on human life that is to do with their output, which is very internalized capitalism heavy. But I think happiness just is so underrated. The quality of the work you produce. I am, I am so delighted to work where I work. I am so grateful that I got the job where I did and not anywhere else because I love my work. <laughs> my workplace I so love much that. I love to hear that <laughs> I love it so much I love my colleagues so much and I love the the work we do so much and yes it's a lot because we're a small organization but the reason why we're a small organization and respected within our community and drawn upon by national governments is because we produce good work because we're happy and we care about what we do and that's not to say every day is going to be perfect if you have inclusion um if you have inclusivity initiatives, but they will make the place better and, and recognize that it's not overnight, it's day to day. But on, on an individual level, what I would say, it's, it's, there's active things and passive things you can do. So passive things is just, is just providing a platform for the people you know that are minorities within your community. Um, so a small thing that I do, for instance, is instead of quote tweeting on Twitter everything mm -hmm. about someone that has done something cool, just retweet it. Make it about them. Don't make it about you. When you quote tweet someone, even if you're complimenting them, people are interacting with your content, not theirs. At the first. Sorry, what is sorry? Just interrupt. What is quote tweeting for anyone who doesn't know? So exactly? uh, it's when you take a tweet and you take the tweet and you uh, sort of frame it and put a comment on top of it. So it's like you can oh. see the original tweet, but you can also see someone has said something. So when you click, oh, okay. you can say retweet with comments. Um, and then it comes up as like you saying something and then you seeing the tweet. Um, try and if you are privileged and it's great that you recognize you're privileged, say it once. But after that, stop complaining about it and like actually use your privilege to, to provide a platform and a space for people that might not be as privileged as you and let them um, sort of go forth and do whatever. So if you continuously complain about your privilege, it's either because you want to do something about it or because you just want to whine. And like, I just just do something about it. Like, otherwise I don't want to hear it. Yeah, definitely. Like, say 100%. it once, that's fine. And, yeah, and I, I also appreciate that it's a learning thing and like it takes time and there's a lot of unlearning to do. But in my experience, like that's the best way to go about it. And also just ask these people what they want. If you know someone who is a minority in your workspace, just ask them. Ask what would be useful to them in the workplace or in the department or in the lab and say, what could we do that would make your life more equitable? Not easier, but just equitable to everyone else here. Be I think it's a really good word. It's sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's a really good word as well. Equitable is a really good word just to highlight that it's just yeah. That's a really good word. Sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I I think equitable is a really important word because it's about it's about creating a platform for everyone. So so there's like really good graphics that show this, but it's like providing if you have a kid and the kid wants to watch you do cooking and you put a little stool underneath so that they can see you cooking and learn, what you've done is you've provided them with a platform so that they can learn and one uh, day they yeah. it themselves rather than just like having them reach over and not actually see. They're and not immediately read, yeah. doing the thing, but they, you've given them the opportunity to now learn. Whether they learn or not is a whole other thing, but, and that goes into sort of socioeconomic backgrounds or like um, other hindrances within society, but just just to make it a fair playing field and acknowledge the fact that it's not an, an, a fair playing field at all. No, it's not. I think it's a good point you mentioned before how like in your work there's different things and how in every organization there's going different limitations. Yeah. And it's a specific company and organization that has, has specific steps, not just yeah. because every organization is different and yeah. that's how it is. Everything is it's different. a cultural Everybody... thing. It's like yeah. organizational culture that you need to have cultural reset. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was a cultural reset. We re understand that you've recently become a director of WCAPS. Congratulations. Side note. Thank you. Um, can you give a brief overview about what its aims are and what sure. your work is within an organization? Sure. So um, WCAPS, or Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, uh, was set up by U.S. Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. So she's iconic and I love her. Um, but it was set up in the United States uh, initially, and it the vision of it was to advance the leadership 
professional development, I'm saying this off the top of my head, of women of colour in the fields of international peace, security and conflict transformation. So what that means is any policies, processes, um, research that is all to do with peace, security or conflict, to make it, to make women of colour feel more prepared and also more involved within the field. And the reason for that is because global issues demand perspectives. You can't go at every issue from the same perspective. And also you're gonna run out of old white men one day. Like we're, yeah. the amount of issues that we're, we're facing at the moment and the, the, the rate at which they're growing means that we need more perspectives and we need policies that are inclusive of everyone's security concerns. Because security doesn't belong to one person. It's everyone's security. And that's why WCAPS exists, is to provide a platform, particularly for women of color, that creates a strong voice and network um, and encourages dialogue and strategies. And those strategies are for like engaging in policy discussions and so on and so forth. So it's about mentorship, it's about professional development, it's about education. Um, and I, I met Bonnie uh, or Ambassador Jenkins last year. She knew that I was doing loads of diversity stuff and I'd moved into the field um, and we had a conversation and decided that I would start the first non-US branch and that's the UK branch um, and for me that is all about creating women of colour to be champions of a movement that's for all minorities within the field so it's led by women of colour but it's a space for all minorities um, I was actually really when I first announced this I was harassed on Twitter I was sent um, threats I was told that I should go to jail um, and, and that just goes to show why it's so important to have these kind of things. Like, I'm sorry that happened to you. Oh, God, that's so okay. That... It, it was really horrible. And, oh, and that's, I think it's important oh, to talk God, about it because it shows, yeah. it shows that like the internet can also be a horrible place, right? 100%. Oh, um, and I think it, it was really difficult, but it, it outlined to me why it was so, so, so important um to, to, to do this um and yeah like so at the moment we we are building our strategy we're building our we've got a board um we were meant to be launching in april but then coronavirus happened um no. so we are actually going to be launching yeah we're doing a virtual launch next month and then a proper launch uh once all of this dies down back and we say about mentorship mentorship can you explain mm. the importance of having a mentor in just in terms of diversity and inclusion and kind of having someone to like look up to? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I don't agree with a lot of box ticking arguments, like I said, but I think it's really important to mm. see someone that looks like you doing something new, um, especially yeah. when you're really young, because that's the first yeah. thing you see. Right. Um, and also, OK, so this is a really weird example. When I go to Mac or Lush, I always ask for a woman, an Indian woman, to mm. to give me product recommendations for my skin and my hair. Yeah. And the reason being is that they've experienced more similar things to me than a white woman will have experienced because I'm an Indian woman. So mm. they will be able to recommend better products <laughs> for my yeah. hair and skin. Um, and so whenever I've bought foundation and it's been from an Indian woman it's it's worked out much better for me than one that a white woman recommended because her experience of my skin is different and and I think it's a similar thing like it's this this woman has probably gone through look, look every woman is different every person is different it's really important to make sure that we don't define women of color as one homogenous blob there is diversity within that but you are more likely to understand and adapt to a certain field if you are given the advice of someone who has more likely had similar experiences to you than someone else that might not be a woman of the same color as you that might be someone with the same mental health condition as you yeah. or someone who went to a similar school as you um and and that's something we're accounting for um at wcats um it's not just like matching indian women with indian women for instance if we're doing a mentorship thing but i, th I that's why it matters because every experience is different you can you, there is no amount of university or private school education that can yeah. replace tacit knowledge and experience that is what i strongly yeah. believe so for anyone who is listening today who wants to take a more active role in diversity initiatives either themselves or kind of bring that to the organization is there anywhere you could, would recommend for them to go to 
UK sets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I'm going to have Antonio make a compilation every time I ask him, we're like, like UK sets. <laughs> I would say UK sets. Um, w yeah. caps. Um, I think yeah. there are lots of resources online. Just, I could, I could um, send some over. There's stuff like McKinsey yeah. um, that published stuff. Girl Security is another good one. Um, yeah, there's, there's resources online. But honestly, like, if you're listening to this podcast, your first port of call should be UK Sets, in my opinion. Yeah, 100%. We, we are doing good. Oh, also there's, like, experts, researchers, like, um, people that organize the space security in context. Sorry, Space Society in Contracts Conference, um, which was the first virtual conference, and it was um, first virtual space conference of its kind. It was like flipped format learning. It was organized by uh, Divya Passard and Ellie Armstrong, um, yes. both of whom were soon to be PhDs. Um, but yeah, um, um, but yeah, if you're listening to this, just just get in touch with UK Seds, and we can put you in touch yeah. with the right people. Okay, so we ask this everyone. What is, what are you most excited for in the future of spaceflight? <gasps> One thing. Oh no. That's no. That's why I make it hard. No. <laughs> um <Yes>. no. <laughs> what? Um oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um right. This is really dumb. No, there's no dumb answers. I Okay, look, there's a lot of really massive cool stuff that's going on like virgin galactic and Boeing and whatever capitalism but in space it's a good thing but i make that joke every time um i i just think that the fact that more and more people are going to be able to see earth from space yeah. is going to be magical how have you possibly been like able to accomplish so much at such a young age. I've never had to scroll so much in someone's LinkedIn profile. And you told me before we started how you, you stopped adding things to it. Like, how do you do so much, honestly, and maintain just like a balance in life? Um, I don't. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, no, I do. I do. Okay, look, look, look. First of all, I have been. Okay, I went to a really shit school, um, and I was a proactive person and. There were organisations, I was lucky enough to be born and brought up in London, which meant that there were organisations there that wanted to support mm. me. And my thinking was, as soon as I got the opportunity to do that for other people, that was what I wanted to do. And so wow. any chance I could to do that, I took. And then as you get older and the more you work, the more people want you to be involved, I guess. Like, it's you have to be discerning about what you do and what you don't do and i think the one thing i learned the most like the biggest lesson i learned when i was chair of uk sets and also working full-time was the value of not working mm -hmm. which which sounds stupid but my god just being able to spend time with your friends or cross stitch or sing yeah. or go on a run life is too short to just like pack it full of 101 things but that's but that's not to say that like doing things isn't cool um i took every opportunity i could um and did my best that's all you can do just do your best yeah. you don't have to be the best uh, compared to other people you just have to be the best um that you can be and you don't have to be that all the time either that it, it, there's no point of continuously challenging yourself and fighting with yourself non-stop and being miserable all the time because if there's one thing this pandemic has taught me is that life is like short and fickle and unpredictable and you should do what makes you happy um as long as it doesn't hurt other people that could not be more well said <laughs> literally Anu, thank you so much for being here today it's so nice to talk to you it was lovely to see you and chat with well see you virtually and chat with yeah. you again um you're doing a great job so well done uh, and thank you for having me no, of course. You're, you guys said it's like legacy. Very kind of you. You are. Wait, I'm going to stop recording. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Preparing for Launch. 
Check out our website, spacecareers.uk and ukstats.org for more information and updates on the space world. Be sure to join me Thursday at 5 in two weeks' time. Bye, everyone. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Preparing for Launch, where we speak about the space sector through entertainment, education, advice, and insight. Today, we have Anuradha Damale to speak about space policy and diversity. Anu joined The Verdict in July 2019 and is a research assistant on the Verification and Monitoring Program. She holds a BSc Honors in Physics from Durham University and an MSc in Science and Technology Policy from the Space Policy, from the Space Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex, specializing in applying science policy approaches to international security. Anu is currently the UK Director of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. She is currently on the board of the British Pugwash and is a member of the Younger Generation Leaders Network. She was, previous, she was previously the chair of UK SEDS. Honor was recently awarded the We Are the City Top 100 Rising Star Award for her work in promoting inclusivity, accessibility, and equity in the international security space. At the center of most of her work have been the causes of inclusion and diversity and the belief that in order to form sustainable and innovative technology or policy, inclusion is necessary. Minus X minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 